This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. Believe it or not, we have not recorded an episode since the SAG strike ended. It feels like it's been months uh, since the actors have been out there because they're all out there. It is craziness. The Disneyland rope drop has come to pass. Um, So we're going to figure out where things stand now that the strike is over and maybe who will benefit. And we'll talk about two new movies that might be right on that list. Um, There's the Hunger Games prequel, The Bout of Songbirds and Snakes, which actually did get an interim agreement kind of right at the buzzer there. That was a little odd. Um, And then Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which is debuting right now. Um, And then Ridley Scott, who was not on strike as a director, is still probably the best interview in the world. So maybe maybe it's not that different after all. Um, But let's go back to all those uh, actors racing to fill seats, Q&As, to book screening rooms. Um, David and Rebecca, it really feels like you guys have been in the center of a whirlwind. Um, Does it feel as chaotic as it looks every time I see a photo of someone on a red carpet? One thing to keep in mind is that the studios had these plans in place. And so while I've come into some of these events expecting like, God, how are you guys getting all this stuff on the calendar? They're like, oh, no, this was on the calendar. We were ready to go. (laughs) And every passing day that the strike didn't end was actually where the shuffling was happening. And now there's a real energy and a, a sense on the part of strategists and campaigners of like, this is what we do. We are ready to go. So I, it's definitely chaotic and it's a lot. And you sent some actors kind of being suddenly thrust back into, you know, mingling with hundreds of people at a time on a daily basis. But in terms of the campaigns themselves, I think that they are just relieved, really. And, and they were very prepared for this moment. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I've talked to a couple award strategists who admit that this is unprecedented for them to have this happen. And that's saying something because these are people who have been doing this for decades. But it does feel like there's this renewed positive energy that is really enjoyable after, you know, months of everyone just feeling so stressed and concerned about what was going to happen, both for awards, but obviously for the industry at large. So I, I will say that on, I think it was Thursday or Friday last week, like I have never gotten so many calls and emails about like, can you moderate this? Can you moderate this? Can you moderate? And I was like, because everyone was getting the actors out there like immediately. Um, so I've never seen that happen before. But 
Yeah, I mean, when you look at things like the Saltburn premiere was last night, like they were, you know, the actors were ready to show up for that. And then as soon as the strike ended, you know, we knew that was going to be a, a big starry premiere. So they've been ready for weeks, as David's saying. It's just they finally can jump into action rather than canceling a bunch of things at the last minute. Yeah, I was at the Denver Film Festival over this past weekend, which was a lovely time. If you're in that area, you should go next year. But I was talking to a publicist who handles a lot of actors, and they were like, yeah, I had to call my client you know, last night and say, you have to be on a plane in four hours <laughs> to, go, <laughs> to go do press. And the client was like, okay, because they've all been waiting, you know? Yeah. Um, I just feel like everyone had suitcases packed, you know, basically. Yeah. <laughs> And it's really the things that are kind of like um, a limited quantity where the chaos has happened. Like, I think we've heard about late night shows mm-hmm. just being a mess because, like, that's not something you can schedule and reschedule. Like, there's just only a how many seats that there are next to Jimmy Fallon on a given night. And in our case, like, booking interviews on this show, just as important uh-huh. as Jimmy Fallon. Obviously, um, there is a sense of scramble there, I think, where it's just like we had nothing, nothing, nothing. And we were really trying to figure out what to do, who to talk to, which, you know, poor costume designers to put in the spotlight. And now everyone's like, hey, me, pick me, pick me and figuring out how to choose is tough. You want to give people a peek behind the curtain, Katie? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's true that there's, you know, press days being set up really abruptly and uh, actors are doing, you know, working long days already uh, just to start getting their names out there a little bit. You know, there's a really wide range of movies and scales of movies that we're unable to promote on that side of things, as we've talked about a lot. And so, you know, it, it can range from a movie like The Color Purple, which is this big blockbuster getting a big theatrical rollout, to a movie like American Fiction, um, where somebody like Jeffrey Wright, who's in this really character-driven, James L. Brooks-esque comedy drama, couldn't get out there, uh, despite all the affection for the movie and despite the fact that it really needs that kind of boost. So that's one example of a movie that is really going to benefit from just being able to have the talent talk about it. Yeah, I was thinking about American fiction specifically because I think it was originally scheduled for release right around now. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways, it's like a great Thanksgiving movie. Like you could easily go take your family to go see that. It's kind of similar to The Holdovers. So a lot of times movies will delay until December. It won't be like, oh, they're just going to get lost in the shuffle. But I wonder if that calculus is different this year. If like, yes, there's going to be a a press for attention, but it's worth it to be able to start with your actors out there rather than have to start halfway through. Yeah, I think there's a big advantage to films that either pushed or have a release date that is later than whatever the date is today, <laughs> because um, you think about films like Nyad or even things like Oppenheimer that came out a long time ago. And when we're talking about things like those late night slots, like I have to assume they're kind of like us, where the priority goes to films that are about to come out or coming out soon, you know, versus a film that maybe has been out and is trying to sort of uh, reinvigorate that uh, awards buzz. So I, I think the ones that pushed just a little bit into November, December, um, it was a smart move. And, and in retrospect, it'll look like that. So what titles are we talking about here that get that December bump? I think Poor Things is kind of the the prime example because they were supposed to come out in September. That was obviously a really dramatic shift. Um, what else is like really poised to seize this moment? Yeah, so um, The Color Purple reactions will be out later this week, I believe, maybe even tonight as of when this podcast goes up. But this movie is perfectly positioned uh, from when the strike ended to have a full rollout with its cast um, before it comes out, you know, in a little bit over a month. Uh, So the talent and director, Blitz Bazoule, are, you know, 
getting going uh, this weekend. And that's just a perfect example of why having that runway is so important because they don't have to rush as much. They can take their time. We had a Fantasia Burino cover uh, out via Variety this week. I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot of stuff roll out very steadily uh, over the next few weeks. And that's a that's just one example of a bigger movie that now can kind of campaign like one and doesn't have to shirk at all. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of campaigning like a bigger movie because I think that's something we really have missed. You know, the Barbie and Oppenheimer teams were like out on the carpet until the moment the strike began. And since then, even stuff that's been like really significant has just been kind of present rather than being given the the gigantic treatment. Yeah, I mean, to add to that theme, too, of being able to be on schedule a little bit, uh, I moderated a, a May-December Q&A this week, kind of an Academy Tastemaker event with some big names in the audience. And from the, the feedback I got on the Netflix side is basically like, this is perfectly timed. The movie's hitting theaters mm-hmm. this weekend. It is hitting Netflix on December 1st. And this is when they would want the talent to be out. And this is when they would want to do a really big release push um, before getting into the more specific awards side of it. So that's a movie that, yeah, it's a little bit late given the you know level of talent involved. And, you know, having a discovery like Charles Melton, who really has to get out there, who, by the way, is very charming, uh, can confirm Oh, I don't officially. doubt it. You can't spend all that time in Riverdale and not have the charm to hold up. Yeah, just a side note. Uh, not one that would surprise anyone listening or anyone on this podcast. But um, but yeah, it's it's and it's something that I'm happy about as a big fan of that movie to be able to see those actors in action. Uh, and they all seem really rare and to go. I mean, Richard, you will be voting with the New York Film Critics Circle right after Thanksgiving, I think, which often Mm -hmm. is kind of the beginning to like the kind of real part of the season, you know, from the fall festivals up until now. It's kind of just people like us paying attention. Does it feel like more real now than it usually does? I would say panic inducingly so. Oh, <laughs> yes. there you go. I've sort of You're been very like, important, even more than usual. I've just been like delaying that thinking. And now it's like, oh, Thanksgiving's next week. And then the week after that, I have to have like a clear picture in my head of what I want to vote for and like who to even kind of consider. But like, yeah, I think that, I mean, the funny thing is, it's going to be a lot of hurry up and wait. Like we're going to rush into yeah. all this campaigning and doing all this stuff. And then the Oscars are still in March. Like that hasn't <laughs> changed. Uh, and so we're going to still have that long kind of post New Year period of, um, you know, I mean, obviously the nominations will be exciting. But then after that, it's I feel like things will just kind of feel normal. It's just between now and the holiday. And I think I'm some tiny, tiny, tiny part of that ecosystem. And and I feel a bit like harried. You know, and I, I could have been spending this time watching, I don't know, have you heard of documentaries? Did you know that those exist? <laughs> um, There's a lot of them every yeah, year. I, it's, I'm not, probably not pronouncing it right, but um, yeah, I don't <laughs> a know. A lot of syllables. <laughs> I just feel like my I, I'm going to show up to my parents' house and be like, hey, good to see you. Um, I'm going to go hole up in this room with my laptop and watch <laughs> watch stuff for the next They don't want to watch uh, documentaries about hospital chaplains uh, with you over Thanksgiving? Uh, the question is if I want to watch it with them, you know? <laughs> It's interesting <laughs> yeah. you you mentioned that like January February window and what I've been hearing when it comes to concern for that time is that a lot of these actors are going to jump into production after the holidays yeah. and be pulled away from doing campaigning so there there seems to be some worry on strategist's part of like 
are we going to be able to get the talent? And that happened after the pandemic too, where like everyone went back into production and that award season, it was like tough to get people to come back into town to, to do all those extra, you know, awards events and interviews and stuff. So I wonder if we're going to see that when we hit uh, phase two. Yeah, it kind of feels like we're in this like beautiful interim period where actors can go back to promoting, but no one's back on set yet because there just hasn't been time. So they have to like hit that pavement as hard as they can between now and Christmas. Yeah. And they're not burned out like they would be in a normal season right now. So ah, they're like, just, put just me wait. out there, coach. Yeah. <laughs> Give them time. Talking about it feeling like it's really perfect timing for them kind of makes me wonder if we don't need the first three months of the season that we get so wrapped up in. I wonder if, if the reps are having that thought, too, that like... There is a downside to things kicking off in September so insanely early and maybe a pause like the SAG strike demanded should be more of a normal part of the season. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I, I was thinking of Killers of the Flower Moon and and that campaign just seems really perfectly driven to me, given the constraints of the strike. Mm -hmm. Like Martin Scorsese was such a brilliant face of the first phase of that campaign and gave really beautiful, candid interviews that spoke to the weight and significance of that movie in a way that maybe even having Lily Gladstone everywhere wouldn't have. And now you get to the point where that backbone has been established and you can have at like an Academy event, Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro there, and you can start to have that full court press. But it seems in retrospect really smart the way that's unfolded. And I think that's true for a few films. So we give them credit for strategy and not just like trying to adapt day by day and hour by hour <laughs> on what's going on. It was all part of the plan. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if Martin Scorsese would have done all the press that he did, but it was absolutely uh, enjoyable uh, for everyone who enjoys A, TikTok, mm -hmm. B, long form <laughs> magazine interviews, or C, uh, really deep dives into his filmmaking because we got all of that, which is a real treat and really rare, I think, for a filmmaker of that stature. I hope Francesca Scorsese was on the Apple payroll at some point. They got so much out of her. <laughs> she just, she deserves everything she can get. And she needs the money. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Nepo babies are not cheap. Um, so we've talked about what feels perfectly timed, and that includes like titles that have been out there for a while, like Maestro and Killers of the Flower Moon. Is there anything that you think kind of lost ground because of the strike that now needs to make up for it? Or will just you know, is trying to have its comeback, but it's going to get crowded out or could get crowded out. I tweeted out a joke with the, the night the strike ended. I, I was like, all caps, and you know, I did so much fucking swimming, Annette Benning, 6am tomorrow. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I, I feel like she's just like, probably in the water right now. <laughs> you know, um, that that movie, I think a lot of the stuff that came out rather unceremoniously in the last month or two, really has lost a lot of ground while Sandra Uller has you know, pulled ahead. <laughs> um, I don't think it's too late because I think that it is easy to look at something like, you know, a Nyad or a Holdovers, which like they couldn't have their actors promoted. And then the movies premiered, they came out in theaters, they dropped on Netflix, whatever, kind of, as we see it relatively silently. But the thing about it is that like, that's not how awards are determined. Like movies that premiered, you know, six months ago can still have tons of FYC screenings and all that stuff. So I, I don't really know that anyone has lost that much ground. I mean, you look at something like Coda, which did have an, you know, in a non-strike year, had a very unceremonious release after a virtual Sundance premiere where it did very well, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in front of audiences. And then it kind of came out in August of that year and 
you know, to not any really any fanfare. And then because it had the financial backing of Apple, slowly did the plotting work in this time period we're in right now mm-hmm. into next year of getting it in front of the right people. And so any of these movies could do that, um, provided they have the financial resources, which is the big issue. Yeah, I mean, Annette Bening's obviously a great example, and it's one we've talked about a lot. I mean, I, I think of a Netflix example from last year, Anadarmus. Uh, at this point, that movie had come and gone to a very polarized response on Netflix and after a Venice premiere, and it didn't seem like a movie that would have the legs to figure into a Best Actress race, especially when Netflix did kind of throw it out ahead of their much stronger overall contenders. Um, but people really admired that performance. She got out there and she was able to pull through. This was also the year, of course, of Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie. Another what performance we did not have on our radar at this point, nor did I think anyone else in the industry. So it's still early. And the actors branch, if we're talking about performances, have their ways of <laughs> glomming onto particular performances that can be hard to foresee at this point. And somebody like Annette Benning. Uh, is very much in that category of a beloved actor who's doing something in this movie that I think a lot of actors specifically will appreciate and that takes a little bit more time to for the accomplishment to perhaps resonate on that level. You know, as a as a true red-blooded American who watched Nyad on Netflix, the way many people will, I had a great time watching Nyad. Mm-hmm. It, it plays so well. It is something that you imagine the more people get their eyes on it and think of it more than, you know, than the she spent a year in the ocean swimming thing. There's there's so much to it once you put it on. Jodie Foster really is as good as you guys have kept saying. So, you know, it could have legs or sea legs or however you want to put it. <laughs> I just wish it had a different title. You know, like yeah. the greatest swim of all time or something, you know, <laughs> this lady swims for 50 hours. Watch now. You know, I, like I just went to watch it like it's a solid sports movie if you if you want to put it in that genre. Yeah. I feel like the um, the Coda example you brought up earlier, Richard, is what the holdovers is probably going to really work toward. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know that they have like a family unit the way that that movie does, but it is kind of the closest to like a family movie that we've had compared to Parasite, Coda, Everything Everywhere, etc. Um, and I, you know, I hope that they would all like get along and walk into a room together and have a great time. Like they have that path in front of them. And I, I hope they don't feel like it was a mistake to put it out when they did, because I am very glad it's there as a Thanksgiving movie. It's, you know, opening wider and wider. More and more people are getting to see it. It had a lane to itself for a while. And it feels like there is a, a wave it can grab in the coming weeks. I mean, that was definitely the movie where when I saw it in Telluride, I was like, this is the movie I bring home to my parents. This is the Mm -hmm. movie I would watch multiple times with different types of audiences. So I think it's definitely going to have strong legs. And and, and the actors are out there now, and it's not, you know, too far from uh, release that it's going to be a problem. So I, I feel like they're in a pretty strong position. Dominic Sessa's got to introduce himself to the world. Yeah. See if he can hold a candle to the Charles Melton charisma offensive, though. That sounds like a pretty uh, (laughs) tough match. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through with Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so to move on to what is going to be in theaters and maybe proving some of this uh, theory we're talking about, about who's getting out and promoting what. Uh, the Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is out in theaters this week. Uh, you heard Savannah Walsh talking to Tom Blythe, the star, on the podcast earlier this week. Richard, you've seen it. Um, I feel like you were a Hunger Games person to some extent back in the glory days, um, at least had some respect for the franchise. And it sounds like this one is actually pretty good. Yeah, I I uh, bought the first book on a whim at Penn Station on the way home to see my folks for Christmas. And the day after Christmas, when I had tons of books that my parents had gotten me as gifts sitting all around me, I made my dad (laughs) drive me to the Barnes & Noble closest to us so I could buy the next two books. (laughs) That's a real reversion to high school right there. That's impressive. I was very much not in high school when this happened. Um, But uh, yeah, so I've been a fan since then. I think the movies are uneven. I think the first one is not a great introduction, but I think they kind of get better and better as they go. I think the fourth film, um, so Francis Lawrence, who directed Songbirds and Snakes, directed the previous three Hunger Games movies, and I think he really figured them out. There's a lot in those books that needs to kind of be cracked because the visual descriptions aren't actually that evocative. Like, you kind of don't know what Suzanne Collins is talking about a lot of the time. But that said, I was very skeptical about this prequel. I bought the book during the really, really, you know, thick days of the pandemic, probably in like April or May of 2020, brought it to Prospect Park to read on my iPad, got literally a page in and was like, wait, I don't care about this. (laughs) And never, (laughs) never went back to it. So I went in pretty eyes rolled about about the movie. And much to my surprise, or I guess like, I should have known, given that I've liked Francis Lawrence's other Hunger Games movies. I think that Songbirds and Snakes is like really good. It's not perfect, and I think a lot of people will who are skeptical of the whole franchise will nonetheless be skeptical, you know, still be skeptical of this. But like, I don't know. I was really sold on it. I think it's very dark. Um, it speaks to current political, global, you know, conflicts, wars happening at the moment um, in a pretty bracing way. I don't know. Think that that was necessarily intentional, but. It does certainly have a relevance. It's well acted. It looks good. Yeah, I don't know. I'm 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 sort of a little flabbergasted by how sold on it I was. I have been thinking about Rachel Zegler a lot, who um, you know, is going to be in a Snow White movie that's coming out in over a year. But we were also dazzled by her in West Side Story. Does this feel like it's kind of worthy of her, and maybe in a way that the Shazam sequel wasn't as a um, proof of her star power? Yeah. I mean, she sings in it, and that's part of the the story. You know, that's part of her character. Um, and it feels a little times a little awkwardly shoehorned in, but but not the whole time. And she sounds great. And she's doing this kind of, I guess, Southern or Appalachian accent that actually she does pretty well. The character is more of a an idea than a fully fleshed human being, which is maybe a problem, but that's not Zegler's fault. Um, I think she does a really good job in the movie and also sort of makes a case for further movie stardom that I guess the, the the managerial plan from her team was that like, okay, you'll have this in the fall and then in the spring you'll have Snow White and, you know, then it's off to the races. But that's now, Snow White's been pushed to 2025, so um, it'll be a little bit slower of a trajectory. But yeah, she's really good in it. Um, and, and Tom Blythe, who Savannah spoke to, uh, is really good as well. And he's not someone I don't think I'd encountered. Oh, I, mean, I guess he was in Benediction. But other than that, I don't I hadn't seen him before, I don't think. He was on um, 
Billy the Kid, like a star series, I think. But Sure. Yeah. Just yeah. making up shows now, Katie? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Look. Epics. It was Epics. Oh, you're sure right. Uh, see, the path from Epics to The Hunger Games. Is, oh, um, the Epics, Billy the Kid, of course. Yeah, yeah of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, the, not the Billy Joel song. Yeah. Glad I clarified that for you, Richard. Yeah. Um, I mean, this seems like it's going to make money, too, right? Like, we don't talk about box office too much on this show, but I think everyone is nervous about the theatrical model continuing, and it can't all be Five Nights at Freddy's. So I'm I'm rooting for it on that level, even without the Hunger Games aspect of it. Well, I mean, maybe here's where, I don't know, reviews actually do their job, because if I hadn't seen it for work, I was almost assuredly not going to buy a ticket to it. Maybe I would have watched it on streaming at some point down the road. You know, and I'm a fan of it of the franchise and I was just like, nah, I don't really care. It's prequels are bad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the reviews, because people saw it before I did, uh, the reviews have been really good. And I think those would have then compelled me to see it. So I hope it makes money. Um, I think obviously the industry needs it, but it's also a good piece of work and it deserves to be seen by people. But I I don't know. I think they have to fight a lot of franchise fatigue, um, which, you know, as the Marvels is proving, like that can be a pretty steep mountain to climb. Yeah. The Run Through with Vogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we keep talking about Thanksgiving viewing with your family. I don't know what your family scenario was like. And I haven't seen Napoleon, so I don't know if it is good family Thanksgiving viewing. Although I have heard a lot of talk about a lamb chop that's uh, very prominently <laughs> featured in Napoleon. Um, now people are I have gotten to see it. The reactions to it are in some ways all over the map, although there's the idea that it's a funny Napoleon is still kind of boggling my mind. Um, Richard, you just saw Napoleon with all the New York critics. Um, is this going to be a last duel situation where one coast loves it and one coast hates it, or are we more unified this time? I gotta say, the prophecy might be coming true, because mm. our West Coast friends on this podcast liked it more than I did. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it does share a lot of DNA with Last Duel, at least in one part, which is the sort of investigation of, you know, comically awful male stubbornness and ego and all that stuff. Um, but there are also two other parts to the movie, which is a romance with Josephine, played by Vanessa Kirby, and then Ridley's favorite thing to do, which is big old-fashioned battle scenes. And I don't know that the movie balances those three parts uh, as well as it could. Um, but the parts that work, like the funny stuff, uh, I think are are really good. And, and I just wish that maybe the movie had pursued that more wholly. But again, Ridley was like, uh-uh, but we have to get to another battle scene. <laughs> David and I saw it a little early, and I went in with no expectations. And I think I was just so pleasantly surprised by the funny stuff and the the choices that those two actors made that I just enjoyed those scenes so much. And I, the battle scenes are obviously really well done, but every time there'd be a battle scene, I'd be like, when are they coming back? When can I see Joaquin and Vanessa Kirby together again? Mm. And 
It's just like, it was surprising. And I don't think we're often surprised. And, you know, maybe now that reviews are out and more people are talking about it, it won't be as surprising for everyone else. But anytime I'm pleasantly surprised with a film, um, which is similar to what happened when I saw May, December, like it becomes one of my favorite and most enjoyable experiences. Yeah, I truly have no idea what to expect from this one. I've been honestly pretty cold on on Ridley lately, and and I'm sure that informed the way I saw it too. I I just found the the balance and the the toggling between prowess and pathetic really interesting, and it's it's not particularly elegant in the way that he goes back and forth, and you can definitely feel the longer cut of this, you know, fuller cut of this movie that exists that was edited down. I think particularly in uh, Vanessa Kirby's arc, and Vanessa Kirby is outstanding in this movie, um, but you can also sense that there was more there that is not in this in this theatrical version. But I, yeah, it, it worked for me. I, I, I found the humor really effective. And I thought Joaquin Phoenix was really funny. Uh, and it, it's where his casting was kind of unlocked for me because there is a bit of an absurdity to his casting as well. Uh, just purely on the terms of him playing Napoleon <laughs> uh, in, a, in basically his own accent. But it is it is not a perfect movie. It is not a movie that the seams show. Uh, let's put it that way. The seams in the edit. But nobody does battle scenes like him. And increasingly, nobody does like weird, campy, period satire of awful men like he does. Mm. And I like seeing both of those together. <laughs> it's funny that Ridley in his 80s is now in his like epic comedy era. <laughs> like, like he's yeah, like, how's the this last duel? He's just like, let's have a little fun with it. Um, and Joaquin Phoenix is really funny in, in kind of in a similar fashion to the character he played in Scott's Gladiator. Um, which yeah. Joaquin Phoenix was Oscar nominated for. So um, mm. that's interesting to think about. But with regards to the length thing, like maybe it's part of his Apple contract where they were like, really, you just got to get it down to a slim two hours and 40 minutes for the theatrical release. And then we'll <laughs> let you do the director's cut on Apple. I don't know what the arrangement is. But he's been at this for 40 plus years. Ridley, you know how long theatrical movies have to be. Can you just figure it out and not be like, and then we fade to white and then we're onto a new scene because I don't really know how to do this transition without the six scenes I had to cut in between. Um, <laughs> it starts to feel a little bit like, how many Ridley Scott films are we going to watch where it's like, just wait for the director's cut because this isn't how it's supposed to be. It's weird that he's getting less capable of editing. I mean, maybe not weird. I mean, you get old and... You know, you know that you're a master and you're just like, who cares? Who needs me to cut this thing down? But it is such a, a like an ongoing trend. And I think a lot of the times for these, you watch something, you're like, this would be better if from the very beginning he'd been willing to cut this down. If Apple had just committed to Scott's, uh, you know, and, and the screenplay writer's like original vision for it, whatever that might have been, and just said, we'll give you the same budget, but you can break it out over a four episode miniseries that will will stream on Apple like maybe that would have been the way to go you know I, I don't know because I the way that the movie feels both really long and hurried that's a really hard and you know bad thing to do but it feels like Scott has done that more than once now do you want to be in the room with Ridley Scott when you tell him you can turn this into a miniseries <laughs> yeah, right. um, as someone who has sat in a room with Ridley Scott with Katie Rich uh, no I do not want to do that <laughs> true in a very very tiny room and it was uh fun and terrifying i think is the way to put it yeah i i did a panel with him a couple weeks ago and that is exactly the experience uh, i would the words i would use to describe that experience he's an intimidating figure the the other thing and, and i think that there was some initial speculation just about its awards 
positioning. And this really is one movie where I'm like, I, I don't know if that's necessarily even a topic. I mean, it, it definitely deserves to compete in the craft categories. And I think Kirby especially uh, should get talked about in supporting actors. But it's a big, surprisingly fun Thanksgiving movie <laughs> that uh, I think deserves to be considered on those terms. Like a lot of people who knew I'd seen it in advance of the embargo breaking were kind of asking me what I thought and specifically what I thought about its awards chances. And I was like, honestly, I, I don't know. And I, I still don't know. Um, but it just feels like a movie that people should be able to come to with that not in their heads so much. What's it like to not have that in your head? <laughs> I, I don't know. And um, I'm, I'm trying to become that person. So here I am. It's interesting because I was thinking while we were watching it, is there any other war movie in the race this year? Because we need a war movie. And if, if this is it, that means it will be in the awards conversation. Um, I guess Oppenheimer doesn't count, huh? Yeah, I guess that could fill that void. But I mean, the the more scenes are incredible. So will we see it in the at least the crafts and edit ironically editing, I guess, and the, the, oh, yeah. the technical categories? I think that's possible as well. Barbie is about the gender wars. It's mm. <laughs> true. The no, war but you're right, Rebecca. That is, a, that is a missing slot. You know, we don't yes. have our 1917, our ugh, Shutter Hacks, all our quiet. Ridge. All, our, quiet, our, all quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's exactly. the one we saw coming. And yeah, the battle scenes are, I mean, I found them a little repetitive because it's just guys in different shaped hats, you know, in different fields. <laughs> I guess the weather changes. That's <laughs> yeah, one the thing. Yeah, the weather, the very cold one, the snow one, I thought was really incredibly done. Yeah, the that's the, lake, um, yeah. the, his like crowning achievement, the Austerlitz battle where he, yeah. you know, surprised the Russian and whoever else troops and... um uh, that scene is really striking and horrible. Um, oh, I mm-hmm. should say, caveat, and I know actually people really do care about this. If you are squeamish about synthesized, faked animal harm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Napoleon is a tough sit when it comes to the the horses. Yeah. I guess Napoleon famously, uh, it didn't go well for him on the battlefield sometimes in those horses, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, in pretty shockingly brutal fashion in this movie. Uh, that doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound like Thanksgiving movie. I really, you guys have not helped me decide if I should tell my dad to see this movie. Well, just imagine the horse is a turkey. (laughs) It's, oh, you can get into the meta aspects of Thanksgiving as a fundamentally violent American holiday. And then maybe Napoleon is exactly the right thing. Uh, so if you guys like to to pitch this opinion to the wall, like, do you expect anything other than below the line for this Oscar wise? Uh, I mean, Vanessa Kirby is really incredible. I hope she's in that conversation, even if uh, it's a crowded field already. But it's quite a performance. I kind of wonder if Joaquin, now that he has an Oscar, is sort of in that club. You know, when someone wins an Oscar and then they just kind of get a few more nominations because they're like part of the the group now. Yeah. Um, I could see like enough people in the Academy watching that movie out of just general like it's a Ridley Scott film. Like, you know, I want to see it. It's a famous figure from history. I could see him sort of endearing himself to enough people that he sneaks in, although it is a crowded category. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, on social media at VF Awards Insider, and I am around the internet at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best impersonation of Charles Melton's agent goes to Katie Rich. You can't spend all that time in Riverdale.
You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.